With Fidelity Wealth Management, a dedicated advisor can work with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Plus, you'll have access to specialists in estate planning strategies. So you're not just growing and protecting your wealth, you're sharing it. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. If you're listening to my show, you're looking for tips on how to work smarter, not harder. And let's be real. You're already working hard to earn your money. But how do you make sure that your money is working hard for you? Here's how. With a Betterment Automated Investment and Savings app, your money will go to work. They've got technology that will provide you with advanced tools, and they're built to help maximize your returns, not to mention your time. They have expert-built portfolios of low-cost exchange-traded funds. You know I love those exchange-traded funds. There's automated investing technology, and as part of that, automated rebalancing. Many of you have been asking about rebalancing, and it sort of feels like a hard thing to do on your own. With Betterment, easy peasy. They do it for you. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. It is Sunday, October 24th. And if you did not listen to yesterday's episode, go ahead and do that. Chill out. We'll be here when you come back. We have our two-part interview with Adam Tooze, he is the author of Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. And yesterday we talked about how Adam tackled this topic as it was unfolding. And I think that's a very different way of approaching his previous topics, which were more historical accounts. So they, they occurred, then he had some time to kind of dig in and think about his approach. And then he was able to write about the context. This was really like happening as we as we were living it. So in this part of our interview with Adam Tooz, we are going to talk about the fiscal response, the Federal Reserve, how that body of people learned lessons from the 2008-2009 crisis and were able to employ measures learned then very quickly this time around. Adam really does reiterate how important the moves were and how the Federal Reserve really did stave off disaster once again. Here's the second part of our interview with Adam Tooze. I want to uh, talk a little bit about the, the response in March and April. So let's first start with the fiscal response. The lawmakers got together and they, they moved forward. There was, no, there was no finger wagging. There was no uh, 2009, oh, you bad homeowners got yourself into this pickle yourselves. We're not going to bail you out. There was nothing like that. Did that surprise you in the moment how quickly they came to the table and got money flowing? In the early phases, by the summer, of course, we know it's been a Republican mantra since the summer of 2020 that, you know, unemployment benefits is causing Americans to skive off work and, and choose to stay at home rather than to earn their own keep. So that moralism has returned. But in the first phase, it didn't make any sense to anyone. These were government mandated or government supported um, uh, retreats from the workplace. So it made sense to support people. And it was affecting businesses, small and large the core constituency of the GOP, 
And, you know, this was aid lavished in extraordinary degree on every every uh, layer of American society, every segment of American society got its piece of the pie. That's what's really striking about CARES in the, the big CARES Act bill. It's not just in the United States. You see the same pattern in practically every country in the world, really. I mean, does some sort of stimulus, some sort of life support. And unlikely people like Bolsonaro in Brazil, you know, right-wing populist, also does a popular checks program. You have Germany abandoning its complicated debt break rules. You have the Europeans lifting the lid. Mexico, ironically, was like the odd country out. In India, Modi and AMLO. Uh, we have the bizarre spectacle of a notionally left-wing government in Mexico being lectured by the IMF that it's not spending enough. <laughs> discourse, you know, the discourse really shifted in this crisis. This sort of goes back to old theories about how spending is really a choice. It's not limited by anything. It's really, as you say, almost a failure of imagination. How much do you rely on the Keynesian spirit to kind of prove, or, or was this the proof of Keynes's idea of, you know, like anything you can spend is just what you can spend? Like there should be no way to quantify anything. Oh, no, this isn't the, this isn't the Keynesian point is really is a subtle one. So if, you, if you'll permit, I mean, the, the, the Keynesian point is, and the wording is very precise. Anything we can actually do, we can afford. So the point is that the raising of the cash, the taxing, the borrowing, the printing of money bit is really a trivial technicality. If we can actually do it, and I think that's a double-barreled claim there. In other words, can we technically do it? Can we make a coronavirus vaccine? Question mark. We don't know whether we can, but if we can, we can find the cash for it. The cash thing is secondary. The other big word in there is we. If we can get ourselves together, pull ourselves together, as Congress did in the spring of 2020, to concert ourselves and agree what we want is to enable unemployed people to get through this crisis, or small businesses should not fail, then we can afford to do that. The significant thing about the Keynesian point is to relegate the counting of cash, budgetary rules, budget balance rules, pay for type arguments to the second order technical issues that they are. And to say what we need to figure out is what physically we're able to do. And that means there's very distinct limits. There's only certain, you know, there's only so much oxygen in the hospital system. There are only so many nurses that can operate ventilators. That was an absolutely binding constraint in the spring of 2020. Remember those terrifying moments where we're all looking up like, you know, triage lists as to who would actually get oxygen. And those are the sorts of constraints which are very real. If furthermore, you cannot, as we are seeing in Congress right now, agree what you're going to do. Again, the question of whether you can afford it or not is trivial because the issue is, can you actually establish a 50% majority or a 51% majority to do things? So this is the test, right? The... The, what 2020 demonstrated has been all the all the way along true, and, and it goes back to really the development of the modern financial system and modern money. Those give us the capacity in an elastic way to create the credit, to create the purchasing power that we need. The constraints we need to focus on are real material resource constraints, technological constraints, and politics. What 2020 showed is we can master the financial side of things. It, it looked in March as though we were facing an absolutely epic financial blowout went away so much so that folks don't remember. And I hope this book will contribute to, to reminding people of it. But did that mean that we could handle the pandemic, that we could agree to all wear masks? No. 
turned out we could make the vaccine, have we been able to organize to distribute it effectively to the entire world? No. Can we afford to do that? Absolutely we can. But do we have enough vaccine production capacity? No, we don't currently, which is part of the issue. Right. So the Keynesian idea is to try and organize our thinking to focus on the essentials, which are technology, actual resource constraints and politics, and not obsess about whether it balances the books. Because we can balance the books later if that's something that matters. Absolutely. And we, we can discuss whether or not that is the case, but we can do that after. And I want to bring that to the Federal Reserve. I'd like you to talk a little bit about the role that the Federal Reserve once again played in staving off what I think was a pretty scary potential systemic crisis that could have occurred back in March. Yeah, it really was. And if you talk to people who were in the markets in that period, they, you know, you're, you feel like you're talking to people with PTSD, to be honest. Yeah. Um, it untriggers sort of, you know, they just can't stop talking about it and recalling. Because what happened is scarier than 2008. Because in 2008, what blew up were private mortgages and then the balance sheets of the investment banks who'd engaged in this incredibly high-risk strategy for holding big portfolios of, of private mortgages by very short-term borrowing. So they experienced a gigantic bank run. And what we saw in 2020 was, in a sense, even scarier because the market that became unstable and then basically just stopped functioning was not the market for private debt, but the market for government debt. And, and you know, of course, you know, your listeners may not associate American government debt with the highest quality of debt in the world. And it isn't. You know, German government debt, Swiss government debt has a higher rating. The thing about the American treasury market is it's gigantic. And so on any given day, you normally assume that you can sell whatever holding of treasuries you have without it moving the price, without it disturbing the price. So whatever the price is at that moment, you can sell $10 billion worth, $20 billion, 50 if you have to, without it moving the price. It's a, it's, an, it's a fact outside your own problems. So it enables you to separate your private issues from the public realm, in a sense. And so the treasuries act as a sort of piggy bank that everyone holds in their balance sheets against riskier assets that they also have on the balance sheet for earning profit with. And in the second and third week of March, that entire edifice, that is all those assumptions began to break down because the prices in the treasury market were moving in the quote unquote wrong direction. People were selling equities and treasuries at the same time. And then even more alarmingly, it emerged that you couldn't actually sell treasuries anymore, large packets without haggling and having to find some sort of price. And the price that you could get was way below the price that you would want to sell them at. And at that moment, 18 to $19 trillion worth of assets, which are the bedrock of the global financial system, become uncertain in their valuation and in their liquidity. And that was threatening to blow the entire system up. And so what does the Fed have to do? Well, the Fed, first of all, what it does is to uh, enable private balance sheets to hold more treasuries. In other words, create private buyers so that private sellers can find somebody to sell to. And then when that wasn't enough, the Fed started buying itself. And it was buying treasuries in the last week of March at the rate of about a million dollars a second. It was buying 70 to $80 billion a day, 5% of the entire market in a matter of weeks. And so it's a huge stabilizing action to just calm that market down as the precondition for stabilizing all the others. I mean, it's it's sort of intense when I hear you say this could have been so much worse than what happened in September or October of 2008. It really is. I mean, it's it's sort of daunting in some respects. Do you think that 
that obviously it's the lessons of the past. But was it Jay Powell himself, like his personality also that allowed this to kind of move forward in a, in a different way? I don't think Ben Bernanke or Janet Yellen would have done anything else. Um, this isn't rocket science. When you mm-hmm. see what's going on in the treasury market and if you're the Fed, in doing this, it's all within the same system. So all you're really doing is saying to a bank, look, we want on your balance sheet, I know you want to offload treasuries, we'll give you cash instead. And the cash sits on the central bank reserve balance sheet. So they're very internal operations. I don't think it required any kind of great stroke of personal intervention here. I think Powell got out of the way. He's totally undogmatic. He's not somebody who really has, you know, big theoretical commitments. That was certainly helpful. Um, Both he and Lagarde, I think of as being sort of post-heroic, post-wonk kind of central bankers. They're really politicians, you know, lawyers, glad-handing business people, folks with really good connections in Congress, in Powell's case, connections on both sides of the aisle, which is crucial in a moment like this. And so he kind of got out of the way and said, like, okay, you know, he's got a very, very accomplished technical team, especially in the New York Fed, but now also in Washington. What do we need to do to stabilize this market? It clearly can't remain in this state. And they'll say, right, we need, you know, trillion dollars in repo facilities. That's to enable other people to buy. And then, you know, we really need to put our foot down now and just buy, buy, buy and buy, you know, until the market basically will buy an unlimited amount until it stabilizes. What you then end up doing is something on the gigantic scale. And it's the scale that really makes it different from the Bernanke period. But otherwise, um, otherwise, this is very much in the same vein. Here we are. I'm talking to you on the morning that the CPI just came out. Mm-hmm. And we are talking about inflation. And there's a lot of anxiety. And there's a real discussion about supply versus demand shocks. And what can the Fed do right now? What is it that you think the economy needs today to tackle what is probably largely transitory, but it's going to stick around long enough that people are going to be kind of freaked out? What should be happening right now? It's not a set of problems that the American government or frankly, any other government has a lot of influence over. I mean, we're talking here the real nitty gritty of private commerce, essentially, Mm -hmm. big complex industrial production systems. And I think it would be really hubristic to imagine that there's really much the central government anyway that can do. But, you know, the Port Authority of Los Angeles or whatever, that is an agency which has some real influence over these issues. They could certainly benefit from, you know, extra investment. And the infrastructure bills which are stuck in Congress would be one of the places where that investment could come from. But one shouldn't kid oneself about the relationship between that kind of investment that would go in over a period of years. We know how long these kind of projects take in big, complex urban settings. They would, as it were, help in the longer term, but they're not going to help in the next six months. That's going to be down to people on the ground managing these flows, corporate decision making by the big oligopoly of large, you know, uh, the people that operate the big container ships around the world. Uh, and then logistics companies uh, on the ground, both in North America and and in Asia. The same is true for microchips, right? I mean, you can pass legislation in Congress which encourages the onshoring of microchip production in the United States, but there's big choices there to be made about whether you're going for the cutting edge, really sophisticated chips, which are the ones you worry about competing with China over, but those aren't actually the ones which are in short supply. What's been holding up motor vehicle production is bulk commodity chip production, 
And that's, you know, that is shaped by decisions that were made a year or even two or three years ago. And investments that you make now won't pay off for another two or three years. And the price of microchips in the key segments we're interested in actually turned in a downward direction earlier this year. So the incentive for those producers to bulk up capacity is already beginning to ebb. So there isn't really a whole lot that the central government can do about these kind of problems in the short run. So then it's a matter of holding your nerve, riding this out, and thinking about how you taper or do not taper monetary policy, which is exactly what the Fed is is considering. And you know, you could ask what the utility is of continuing to buy mortgage-backed securities in a world in which Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are fully established as the backstops for the vast majority of mortgage activity in the US, much greater than they were before 2008 proportionally. And so there's no risk really here of sort of some sort of private sector's credit crisis. And the housing market, generally speaking, across much of the US is running very hot. So why add more stimulus debt? One could ask. But these are the decisions that the men and women in the in the in the Fed system are making, you know, as we speak, this is what they study every single day. And they're adopting a sort of cautious tapering approach, I think they haven't made any really decisive steps yet. And no one is talking about raising interest rates from the Fed side, the markets may tweak them up. But that will be a whole different ball game. And we're 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 months, probably years away from you know, concerted interest rate increases. Okay, last question. Adam Tooze, author of Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. Uh, I noticed that Neil Irwin in the New York Times wrote about this paper that I then pulled up myself by a young person named Jeremy Rudd from the Federal Reserve Board. You know about this? Yeah. All right. Now, let me just read this. A review of the relevant theoretical and empirical literature suggests that the beliefs around future inflation rest on, quote, extremely shaky foundations. Mm. Tell me about this. What is the, this whole deep dive into inflation, expectations, anchoring of expectations, do I have to go back and reread all of my Econ 101? I think I did 201 and 301 also. But talk about this. Is this important for me to understand about inflation going forward? Is something different that I need to know about? Yes. So there are, there are as it were, um, two more obvious ways of explaining inflation. One is a sort of cost push type theory, which says that inflation is driven by the balance of supply and demand and is focuses on, as it were, the supply side constraints which dictate what can be produced and at what price. And there's there's another set of theories which uh, point to money supply as being the key driver of inflation, more money chasing the same quantities of goods. And the fact of the matter is that neither of those two theories over the last couple of decades have been very good predictors of where prices in the end end up settling. So the relationship between unemployment wages and prices, which we used to assume was that's the supply side story, this is the so-called Phillips curve story, has been very fragile. Statistical correlations have been quite fragile in the recent past. And so too has the relationship between the amount of money in the economy and inflation, because we've pumped huge amounts in. And so central bank economists, believe it or not, are increasingly fixated on the idea that prices are what they are because people expect them to be what they are. And then those expectations are confirmed by the actions people take on the basis of their expectations. And if that sounds circular, it Mm. is circular. But what you then really need to do is to track what those expectations are. 
And what this iconoclastic paper is pointing out is that if it is true that expectations govern where prices are going to go, we need much better information about how those expectations are formed because the current way in which we sample and try and assess those expectations is frankly very ad hoc. And sort of people give responses to leading questions in surveys that are more or less what you'd expect given the way in which they were led by the surveys. So what he's saying effectively is that the Fed is to a degree flying blind. And a lot of the conversation that we're having about monetary policy is based on the idea that we can read off inflation expectations from a variety of different market signals that those market signals themselves may be based on expectations about what the Fed is doing. So you're locked in a kind of hall of mirrors, an endless circularity. And policy and our view of the economy has lost its foundation in either the logic of quantity of money contrast with available goods or in the supply and demand factors that you might think uh, and certainly do determine prices at the microeconomic level, at the level of individual markets. So he's putting his finger on, I think many people are convinced, uh, sort of a vacuum where a robust theory of price determination and inflation ought to be. Okay, thanks so much to Adam Tooze. Go check out the book Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. Give you a little bit of a bigger picture than what you were living in real time yourselves. And don't forget that if you have a chance, why don't you subscribe to his podcast called Ones and Twos. And most importantly... Do something nice for someone else today. Put your hands metaphorically on someone's back. Grit, growth, grace, a little gratitude. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening.